<clears throat> so Thursday night, by the way, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to bring you the word this morning. Um, Thursday night of this week, I was texting with Josh Thomas because he uh, wrote our liturgy for us this morning. Thank you, Josh, by the way. And as some of you know, I may be prone to do when I'm texting. I just sometimes kind of download a lot of thoughts on uh, on certain people. And in that particular moment, I'd been working on the sermon all week and um, was just trying to, I think, sort some things out in my heart and mind. And I told him that there was a couple of things that I was specifically burdened with as I read through this passage this morning. One of them was that the weight, how absent the weight of God's holiness is in my faith experience. Um, I, I can define holiness for you. I can point you to lots of verses in scripture that talk about God's holiness. I have a cerebral understanding of what God's holiness is. But I don't approach God, I don't think, as if primarily he is holy. I approach him as if he is loving and if he's powerful, but I don't think I approach him as holy. And so that's a burden in and of itself to know that you're going to stand in front of the body of your church and preach on holiness and say, well, I really struggle with God's holiness as an active part of my faith. But secondly, in relation to point number one, is I suspect that many of you do as well. I, I really doubt that I'm alone in that. And then the second thing that I, I texted to him was that, but there's a clear mandate, a mandate throughout all of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end that we are to be holy because God is holy. And so it's undeniable. You can't ignore it. It's, it's everywhere on the pages of Scripture, and yet it's not everywhere on the experience or the pages of my faith. And that, that was a struggle, right? <clears throat> so on Friday... The next day, Josh sent me some screenshots of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you don't have that book, I encourage you to get that book. Um, it's a little devotional book, and it is, Josh and I were talking about it just a moment ago, it is, it is profound, um, but also very approachable. And so I want to encourage you today to order that book if you don't have it, and I would like to encourage you, if you would, either take some time as you read through it, or maybe get with some other people at Antioch and read it um, together. But one of the sections that Josh sent to me spoke to what I had expressed to him the night before. This is, this is a, a quote from the preface of the knowledge of the holy. Tozer says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, 
But little by little, without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on all of our troubles. So that summarized quite well what I was struggling with. And by the way, he wrote those words in 1961. I don't suspect that we have recovered over these last 60 years a tremendous sense of our understanding of God's holiness, though God is faithful to stay near to us, thankfully. So sadly, this theme actually repeats itself throughout all of Scripture. So the news that I have for you this morning is it's not just me that struggles with it. It's not just you that struggles with it. It's not just the Western church in the 21st century that struggles with it. But over and over again throughout all of history, this has been the struggle to to move away from God's holiness and towards our culture and our love of all things created. Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7-1. Um, I looked it up in the Pew Bible and then I forgot to write it down. But it's 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> and if you would, please stand as we read this passage together. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I do not have slides this morning. And so you can uh, keep your Bible open to the extent that you may want to look up uh, some passages. So this is a familiar passage, one that if you've been around church for long, you've certainly come across. It's also a passage that is often, I think, misinterpreted or misunderstood. And so in order to avoid that this morning, it is important to understand the specific 
context. Unless you wonder why we're in this passage also, by the way, we have been in uh, 2 Corinthians now for about five weeks. If you recall, a few weeks ago, Todd preached from 2 Corinthians 5, and then the last couple of times Tanner's preached, he's, he's preached from 2 Corinthians 2 and, or 3 and 4, and so I'm trying to keep this going and is why we're in chapter 6. And I say that because you may have some background for what is happening in the book of 2 Corinthians, but understanding that background is important to understanding and making sure that we apply this text properly. When you think of Corinth, ancient Corinth, think of something maybe like LA and Las Vegas, maybe not that big, but that culturally, that sort of culture kind of combined. It was a very um, wealthy place, There was a lot of worldly wisdom, there was a lot of idolatry, sexual deviations of all kinds were commonplace and even encouraged, so much so that many of these perversions had actually made their way into the church. Much of what we experience in America today was already normalized 2,000 years ago in places like Corinth. There is indeed nothing new under the sun. It's good for us to remember sometimes. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing some very specific and egregious problems related um, to these things within the church. The sexual immorality, there were divisions, um, people were were fighting with one another, etc. It was a mess. And all of this was because the church had raised up false teachers. Their teaching was encouraging and enabling this kind of behavior, while at the same time they were dismantling much of what Paul had been uh, teaching in the 18 months that he had lived in Corinth. And so when we get to 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, much of that had actually already been addressed, and things were getting better. There was hope, but there were still hangovers from, uh, from what had been happening when he wrote 1 Corinthians. What he's addressing specifically in 2 Corinthians, among a few other things, is these false teachers. This is important. They were the root of these ongoing problems. So you can address this and this and this, but if you have false teachers in place, in positions of leadership, teaching a false gospel, challenging Paul's message, then these things are going to continue to arise and you're going to continue to have divisions, which is exactly what was happening. And so it is with this context that we arrive at the first section of our sermon, which I've titled, The Command. And that is specifically to do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, if the meaning of this verse is a little unclear to you, understand that it would not have been unclear to the church at Corinth. They would have understood what Paul was talking about. They would have understood that this was clearly a call by Paul for church discipline. This was Paul's command to them to deal with these false teachers who were causing all of these divisions. In the, in the chapters before this, this is chapter 6, and the chapters before this and the chapters after this, this is clearly what he is talking about. So the text is often used to communicate larger principles like who we should marry or not marry, who we should enter into various partnerships with and, and uh, arrangements and agreements with, etc. 
And yes, there are uh, principles that we can take from that. And we, and we should. I, you know, I would not encourage a believer to marry an unbeliever, etc. But that's not the specific context that Paul is addressing in this passage. And I just want us to understand that clearly so that at some later time, um, you don't allow this passage to confuse you. A couple of takeaways from this. First, the Christian life is difficult. Christian life is difficult. Though we are all, most of us, city slickers in this room, no offense to any of our farmers who may be here this morning, but I think we can all, we all understand what it means to be unequally yoked. Have you ever thought about why they yoke animals together, though? Generally speaking, we yoke beasts of burden together because the work that they are going to do is difficult. And for one of those animals to do it is, possi- is not going to be possible, and so it's going to require more than one. And so in this command, what Paul is implying is that the work of the Christian's life is going to be difficult. The Christian life is a life of service. Christian life is a life of suffering and sacrifice. It is a life of laying down your life for the lives of others. And it is doing that over a long period of time. And so the first takeaway here is just implied is that the Christian life is going to be or is difficult. Second thing we can take from this is it is not meant to be done alone. Christian life is not meant to be approached. The work of the Christian life, the ministry of the Christian is not meant to be approached or done alone. Paul assumes partnership here when he says this. He assumes that at least sometimes it will be necessary for us to come together to accomplish the work. Animals are yoked together because the labor is hard. Animals are yoked together to plow fields, pull carriages, drag big logs out of the woods. Together, not only can they accomplish the work more effectively, but in some cases it may be the only way that they can accomplish the work. And so it is with us. Yes, there is work that we must do on our own, but much of the work in ministry is meant to be done with other Christians. And then third, and I think Paul's primary point here, is that we're not the same. Believers and unbelievers are not the same. And this, I've struggled with this all week and how to, I don't know why, how to, how to say it rightly. We are not the same. You don't, you don't yoke a horse and an ox together. It won't work. A guy like me thinks that it will, by the way. I look at a horse and I look at an ox and I look at the work and I say, if I could get the speed out of that horse and the power out of that ox, I get this done faster. Right, but that's the wisdom of man and the wisdom of a city slicker who should not be yoking any animals together in the first place. <laughs> what on the surface may seem like a good idea, what on the surface may seem innocent, is going to do nothing but to create problems, significant problems. And this is because we are fundamentally different. These animals are built different. They approach the world completely differently. They cannot and do not see things 
the work or otherwise, in the same way. And so it is with a believer and an unbeliever. And this is easy for us to forget. So to drive this point home, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. I want us to look at them briefly. This is verses 14 through 16. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple with idols? I can tell you the answer to all of those. None. Zero. The ministry of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in their relationship to a holy God, believers have no partnership, no fellowship, no accord, no portion, and no agreement with unbelievers. What the Corinthian church, and as we'll see in a second, what the people of God throughout time have forgotten over and over again is that we, who are in Christ, have been set apart. For his divine purposes, he has called us out and he has made us his own. He intends for us, yes, to be salt and light to the rest of the world. But to accomplish that, we must know who we are and what our purpose is. So 1 Peter 2.9 sums this up well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession. Each one of those is set apart, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You have been set apart that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of that very darkness with which we have no fellowship into his marvelous light. But sadly, our tendency is to drift away from God and toward man culture. As Tozer said, little by little, over time, so that it is barely perceptible. And after a generation or two, the people of God begin to look far more like the people of the world. There's a warning in this for us, church, individually and corporately. Where are we drifting? Toward culture, away from holiness. Where are we drifting? Where are you drifting? Where am I drifting? And a question that I'm not sure I've thought about before is how much have we drifted before we even realize that we've been off course? It occurred to me this week that we think that we're right. We think that we have figured this out and our theology is sound. We've got, you know, stacks of books telling us we think that we have figured it out. We are doing church as we know how to do it. But how much might we have drifted before we even got to this place so that we can't even know that we are drifting, especially if it is little by little, imperceptible. It seems fine to us. And so we must 
We must check ourselves with the word over and over. Paul knows this tendency and he's calling us back to holiness, which brings us to the second section of the passage, which I've titled The Promise. The Promise. It's interesting how Paul sets this section up. What he does is he kind of creates a micro summary, if you will, of the entire story arc of the Bible by combining in this section six Old Testament passages that kind of sum up the history of Israel and the lengths to which God has gone to restore relationship with his people. He kind of draws a big loop starting with where they are now. You are the temple of God. And then he goes back and ends up where they are headed. And so if you'll bear with me, I'm going to take us on that brief journey as we look at this passage. This is the end of 16 through 18. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. For we are the temple of the living God. What he's saying is, this is what you are now. He's reminding them, what, you know, all of these questions, what partnership does evil have with Christ, basically? Saying, for you are now the temple of God. What business do you have sharing your priestly duties with unbelievers? Don't you know this has been done before? And then in the first part of the quoted passage, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. With these, this sentence, he takes us all the way back to the garden all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the very beginning, prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve were able to be in God's presence. Because all that God has made, had made was good, and they were without sin, without blemish. Genesis 3.8 says, they heard, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. See, God used to dwell among them and walk among them. But God has set, this is more Tozer, by the way, just not a direct quote. God has set his moral standard for the universe as his holiness. God has set as his moral standard for the universe, his holiness. That's the standard. His holiness, nothing less. And because he is the creator, this is his prerogative. And anything less than God's holiness was seen as something that was detrimental to his creation and it must be destroyed. And so with the fall came necessary separation. There had to be separation because of sin and because of God's holiness. Mankind could no longer be in God's presence. And so they were condemned to death and sent out of the garden, no longer able to dwell with God or to have him walking among them. Because he is holy and because we are not, the separation was so great that man cannot put it back together, cannot overcome it. 
But this is the beginning of the good news. While there's nothing that we can do to restore what we have broken, God desires to be in relationship with us still. And so after leading the Israelites out of Egypt, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle or a temple in the desert. And I want to talk about that briefly. The tabernacle has three sections. I actually wanted to put up a picture, but alas, I have no slides. Sorry. So use your imagination. Tabernacle has three sections. Outer court. Outer court is a, it's just a fenced-in section. It's made with fine linen. Uh, I was telling the youth this morning, every detail was defined by God, down to the number of loops on the curtains, how they were to be woven together, what type of wood was to be used, the separation between the posts, etc., etc. And it was big. So this big wall or t- um, fence, if you will, is the outer court. Inside of the outer court, there was a, um, a bronze basin where the priests could wash their hands after the sacrifice, and there was a bronze altar where they made the sacrifices. And basically, that was it. Anybody, any Israelite who was making a sacrifice could go into this portion of the temple. It was accessible to all. Next, there was what they call the tent of meeting or the holy place. There's two sections here. So this has a roof over it, right? So we've got a big fenced-in area. And then inside of that, we have a tent. And that tent breaks down into two sections. The holy place, which has things like the golden lampstand and showbread, etc. And only now are the priests able to enter in. And they kept the candles burning and the bread replaced, etc. Another thing to note is that as you get closer to the inner part, the materials that are used are more and more precious. And then finally, we have the most holy place or the holy of holies, the innermost chamber. Get that, by the way, the holy of holies. And don't miss the connection here that we are the temple of God. This curtain had more layers, was more intricately designed. They had purple and scarlet and they had woven cherubim and all kinds of designs into the curtains. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, the, the lid of which was made out of solid gold, had two cherubim on top of it. The Ark of the Covenant was so holy that it could not be looked upon or even touched. And then between the cherubim was the mercy seat. This is the place where God himself came and resided. So only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that only once per year. You've probably heard all of this before. On Yom Kippur, he has to have a rope tied around his ankle in case while he's in there, he's found to be unclean and he dies on the spot. No one could go in and get him because they too will die on the spot. And so he has to be dragged out with the rope that is tied around his ankles. The high priest had to follow all kinds of rituals, cleaning himself, the the garments that he wore, etc., etc. 
And then at the end of this ceremony, the priest would take an unblemished goat and he would ceremoniously place the sins of all of the people onto that goat. He would pray over it and he would send it out into the desert, signifying the sins, the removal of the sins of the people so that they could remain in communion with God. You see, after the fall, all of this was necessary for the people of Israel to be in relationship with God. This is what it took. All of this. All the gold, fine linen, purple, craftsmanship, these were all symbolic of God's holiness. All the rituals, they were necessary. The scapegoat was the symbol that the people had been ritualistically cleansed of their sin. And so they could remain in that presence, in the presence of God and in relationship with him in light of his holiness. In time, the Israelites move into the promised land. This was the, this was the temporary, the tabernacle. They could pack it up and set it up again. Ultimately, Solomon builds, Solomon builds his temple, the permanent structure, to replace the tabernacle. But over time, man's sin corrupted all of their ceremonies and all of their sacrifices. They took on the customs and the ways of the people, Around them, they intermingled them into their lives and into their worship. They allowed the profane to intermingle with the holy to the point that God said, I hate your sacrifices. I despise your burnt offerings. Because of this, God allowed the Israelites to be taken into captivity by the Babylons and the permanent temple that Solomon built was destroyed, completely destroyed. They remained in captivity for 70 years and as God is rescuing them from this captivity because he wants to be in relationship with them and he has not given up on them even though they continue to fall for the same thing. We get this quote from Isaiah 52, verse, which is verse 17 of our text this morning. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Because the Israelites all the way back then were doing the exact same thing that the Corinthians are doing in our text this morning and that I fear we as the Western church may be doing today. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. What I want us to take away from this part of the passage this morning is this cycle. What Paul, I think that's what Paul is aiming for. He's telling us that this is a known danger. Wake up. It doesn't have to be this way. That many who have come before us have blindly fallen into this same trap and that we can learn from that. We can guard against that. Do not allow the ways of the world to encroach upon your worship or your theology or your relationship with God. And then finally, Paul completes this loop. And then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. It's an inconceivable promise that after thousands of years of rejection and falling for this over and over again, from creation to the rejection of the fall, from being cast out of the garden and condemned to die, to God mercifully and lovingly not abandoning us, though we abandon him, and he comes and he makes his dwelling with us. 
And that cycle repeats over and over, but God does not give up. Instead, he makes a way. Were it not for him, we would have faced destruction long ago. Because only he can make a way back for us to himself. And this is what he does. He does away with the building. The temple isn't the same to us as it was then. He does away with the curtains. He does away with the purple and the fine linen, with the gold, with all the rituals. He sends his son now as the final scapegoat, a spotless lamb. Takes the sins of mankind once and for all. They're placed on his head and he has sent outside the camp to bear our reproach slaughtered by the very men that he came to save. And his final sacrifice offered forgiveness for everyone who would believe. Here are these two verses from John in Galatians. John 1.12 Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 4.6 and 7 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, he has made you an heir. Which brings us to our final point and the conclusion, which I've titled The Response. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. At this time, as far as I know, there isn't a group of false teachers seeking to undermine the work of the spirit that the spirit has done over the past 14 years in this church. Praise be to God. But this passage is still a warning for us and a call for us to remain vigilant, to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Antioch, we are blessed that God has seen fit to bring to this church, year after year, faithful, maturing believers who desire to live on mission for Jesus, people who can buy into a statement like we pursue intentional gospel relationships to display Christ's glory among the nations, people who understand that because of what Christ has done for us, our heart is for the unbeliever, that we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, the kind of Christians that say, send me, I'll go wherever on this earth you would take me so that I might pursue intentional gospel relationships to display your glory among the nations. And also the kind of people who say, I'll stay. I'll stay back and help make it possible for you to go. What Paul means is that we must guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus actively. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit. We are so quick to take hold of our liberty in Christ, of our freedom in Christ. 
We cling to that, and we should. But I'm afraid that at the same time, we hold the pursuit of holiness in our lives out here. And therein lies the danger. If we, cont- if we continue pursuing our freedom and not pursuing personal holiness, we will fall back into the same trap. And I'll tell you, for a lot of us in this room, that is an uncomfortable reality to sit on. Because the reality is, is that it does call into question a lot of our practices, a lot of our day-to-day habits and the ways that we are engaging with the world. It's like, we don't even like to talk about this. I know I don't. Because I know that what starts to happen is people pushing back and we're putting rules down. So this is a, this is a, 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 a battle that you have to begin to fight on your own and determine where are you, where are you holding up your arm and saying, I'll go here, but you're not going to, I'm not going to give up my right to whatever. And that's, that's the danger, little by little. How long have we been doing that? How much might that have already encroached? Listen, and I'm wrapping up. It may not be the fight that we have to wage at Antioch right now, a bunch of false teachers. I hope not. We will fight. But I don't think it's the fight that we in this church right now are fighting. But it is the fight that the Western church has been fighting since the Enlightenment. It is the fight that many evangelical denominations are losing or have already lost It is the fight that culture is waging against Christians and the gospel in our schools and in our workplaces, amongst our families and and in many homes. And it is the intention and mission to bring it to our doorstep and to extinguish the light that this church emanates in the south end of this city and the torch that our members carry around the globe. That is the intent. And we would intermingle with it. Church, we must remain vigilant. We must be strengthened in our resolve to remain steadfast in the face of an increasingly hostile world. With each passing month, the differences between the church and the world on the whole are becoming more and more clear. And this is why we come to the table each week to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember who we are, to remember that he has set us apart, that he has made us holy, that we do have what we would call positional holiness. You are holy in Christ. You can stand before the creator, the God of the universe, He looks on you and he sees Jesus. But too often we want to claim that and not pursue holiness in our lives. And so let this help us to remember what we have been called to, church. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread 
And he broke it and he passed it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And each time you eat of it, remember me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he passed it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And each time you drink of it, remember me. So church, as we take this this morning, remember what we have been called to. We'll form two lines. Uh, They'll be gluten-free on the left. If you are a baptized believer and you are with us this morning, you are invited to break bread with us. If you're not a baptized believer, you're questioning what you've heard this morning, we invite you to take Christ. Take Jesus. I'll be in the back. Other pastors and people will be in the back to pray with you. We would love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We give you praise, glory, and adoration for your goodness to us, for your word that takes us back to before time began, where you existed holy and set apart and completely other than. Tells us the story that you've chosen to make us and that we've rebelled, but God, that you pursue us. And we thank you for your word and I pray that we would be people who who desire it, who long for it, who, who take of it daily. And that God, you would use your word to awake in us a new, a knowledge of the holy. That we would not approach you as if you were just loving and really powerful but that we would learn to sit in your presence and worship your holiness. Father, we thank you for Jesus through his sacrifice who has made us holy so that we might even come into your presence. I pray that you would take this word now and stir it in our hearts and use it as you see fit, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.